It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So here we are uh, at the start of what's called an alumni summit. Uh, We just finished up a five-week semester, so we have a whole new batch of uh, students in town. And what's interesting about that is we are in episode 16 of a series. So for those of you that were not staying up with the series on World War I, hmm, that'll teach you, won't it? Uh, And I, I tell you what, the first 15 episodes, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. So if you were to ask me like right now, which one do you, did you enjoy more, you know, World War II or World, the, your World War I series, uh, I, I don't know. That's a really impossible question for me. But I, you know, since I'm in the World War I series, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm enjoying. I'm, th- I'm just really excited to share this with you, especially for those of you that are being caught off guard that we're on episode 16 of a series when you show up for the Alumni Summit. But... Uh, we are right, still sort of in the beginning of the war. I can't really give a summary of World War I very easily, and that's why it's taken uh, six or 15 episodes to get to about, oh, I don't know, what are we, like 25 days in to the war. I mean, that's just an extraordinary statement in and of itself. This is part 16. It's called the French Counterpunch, and this really does have a punch to it. This is a powerful, powerful truth which for my soul has been one of the most critical in my life to always remember. And the way that I oftentimes articulate it to myself is in two ways. I'll oftentimes say this, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. Which is to say that when the enemy seems to be overcoming the situation, he seems to have the upper hand, God always raises up an answer. And that idea is very, very critical in my soul. The other one that you'll hear around Ellerslie quite a bit is, uh, you know, Haman hangs on his own gallows. That he erects the gallows to take down uh, Mordecai, the Jew. He schemes and plots to destroy the Jews, and yet he's the one that ends up with the penalty upon his own head. And that's this, the storyline of history. God wins. So if you're wondering how the whole story ends, I'm, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but God wins. And that's the facts of, of it. doesn't matter what it looks like in our world. And right now, I would say this is a fairly good time to apply such a truth in our life. Because it looks as if the enemy has the upper hand. It looks like he has the advantage. It looks like he controls all the thinking centers, all the communicating centers, all the business outlets. It seems like he has us. And yet, just watch. There will be a counterpunch. There will be an answer from heaven. There always is. And God will prove himself victorious. Uh, all right, guys, so you've, those of you that have hung out with me for the first 15 uh, lessons know this uh, map, but we have in the middle, this is a map of, of Europe in 1914, which is the very beginning of World War I, for those of you that are very new to this. I, I have to remember that not everyone knows what we are, all know about World War I so far, which ironically, most people don't know anything about World War I, so 1914. The middle uh, color, that purplish-red those are the called the central powers, uh, the Triple Alliance. And uh, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and then all the way down to the boot in Italy. 
Italy is not going to join up with uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary in World War I because they were in a treaty to defend Austria-Hungary or Germany, and instead Germany and Austria-Hungary are going to be the aggressors in this war. And as a result, Italy's going to have their little loophole to sneak out. And then you have the blue countries, and those are going to be known as the Triple Entente to start out the war, but then they'll be called the Allies as we progress. And that is a landscape that has changed quite dramatically over time. Uh, and yet that's how it's going to start. And so that's the map we're going to use as we progress today. Uh, that big star that I just put on France is sort of going to be the central theme of today's message. That's Paris. The Germans have moved in the aggressive posture to take France and to take it quickly. Their entire plot in World War I is they have two fronts. They have Russia on one side, they have Germany on the other, so they want to clobber France in 39 days so they can turn their attention then on Russia. And of course, you could ask the question, why are they doing this in the first place? Well, because they feel like they're being encircled and they know they'll be attacked if they don't attack. That's their excuse. And so as a result, they have invaded neutral Belgium. You see the B-E-L-G right there above the star, Belge. That's neutral Belgium, and they have already signed a treaty. Germany signed a treaty to protect Belgium. Instead, to actually get to France quickly, they are going to violate that neutrality, which is going to awaken the United Kingdom to enter the war. And ultimately, America will enter the war based on a similar premise. And so we have that star uh, of Paris, and the Germans are attacking from the north. They've gone through Belgium, and they're coming down, but they're also attacking on all that front along the, the side. And it looks really dark for France right now. If you were a betting person, you're going to say France is a goner. And you know, for all practical purposes in history, there's no way that France is going to survive this. Now, I don't want to give anything away. However, France's counterpunch is going to give something away, right? There, something's going to happen. In the face of imminent defeat, what is the Christian response to the darkest hour? There is a way that your soul is supposed to appropriate the dark hour. And yet many of us have not been groomed and trained for the dark hour. And so as a result, we go into our closet and suck our thumb, and we go into the fetal position. We go into a collapsed, crumpled state instead of rising up as believers. Here's Psalm 27, and this is a great statement. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. If you could bottle up those last few sentences and live them out in your, in your Christian life, that's what you draw on in the time of need. When it goes dark, you need to know that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so the commission to your own soul is to wait on the Lord, to be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. France's imminent defeat. This, this, this war is over, guys. I mean, it, it was meant to be only a couple months. That's what was intended originally, and I tell you what, that's what it looks like it's going to be, and France is going to fall. That's just obvious. On paper, there's no way that they can stand. They, the Germans have the upper hand in every way. 
France has misplayed this situation from the beginning. They have issues of their own, which I've gone into in great depth, and yet it's all coming down on them now. So there's our map, and we're going to zoom in, and you know, that, that's a little intimidating, isn't it? If you're the white star uh, there, and you sort of see all those red arrows aimed straight at you, that's what they feel. Now, the arrow at the very top, to the far left, that's von Kluck's army. And he's the one that is going to be sort of the hero character in this for the Germans. That's what he's being set up for. He's the one that's going to take France. France, in the German mind, it's called the Schlieffen Plan. They have to take, they have to take Paris within 39 days. That's critical. Because this colossus known as Russia takes a long time to wake up from its long sleep. But when they wake up, they have the most manpower in the entire world. And so we need to deal with France so that we can deal with Russia. And that's the German mindset. And so they're just about to deal with France. And von Kluck coming down from that uh, most, most left, left arrow is uh, ready to, to capture France or capture, capture Paris. So here's Barbara Tuckman. It's a book called The Guns of August. In preparation for the greatest moment in Teutonic history, that's the Germans, the Germans with admirable, admirable uh, efficiency had already struck off and distributed to staff officers for ultimate presentation to the troops a bronze medal confidently inscribed, entry of German troops into Paris. Beneath appeared the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe, and combining proud memory and anticipation, the dates 1871 to 1914. If you've been around in this series, you know those dates even. However, they have already distributed out medals proclaiming the capture of France. They haven't even gotten there yet, but that's the confidence level we have, okay? I could see the enemy sort of dishing out some medals today, too. Like a swinging scythe, the five German armies of the right wing and center cut into France from Belgium after the Battle of the Frontiers. A million Germans were in the invading force whose leading columns, shooting and burning, entered French territory on August 24th. Uh-oh. It's called the Great Retreat from August 24th to September 5th, 1941. So you have the British and you have the French that are all backing up and they, they're, they're trying to just stave off this onslaught of German power. And the BEF, or the British Expeditionary Force, is in a panic and they can't seem to get a good grip on the situation. They feel like the French have uh, abandoned them and exposed their flank, and they're upset with each other. The French are upset with the BEF. Everything looks bad, okay? They're, if you were on the Allied side, you're not doing a lot of bragging right now. So Barbara Tuckman says, down the long white highways of northern France, cutting a swath 75 miles wide, the German right wing was on the march to Paris with Kluck's army on the extreme right, seeking to envelop the Allied line. Remember I told you about von Kluck? Yeah, he's the guy, and he's, he's in the position to win this for the Germans. This is what they've been dreaming of. They were 12 days in which world history wavered between two courses, and the Germans came so close to victory that they reached out and touched it between the Aisne and the Marne, the Allied front. So in this story, I'm making the Germans the bad guys. Sorry to do that. For the, I am German, so if, if you happen to be German, you can understand. It's, it's a tough thing when we have to be the bad guys, right? But they are the aggressors. What are you supposed to say? And they're the ones that are motivated by the lust for power, the lust for property, the lust for control, the lust for respect and honor. You know, those, those motivations don't usually get you anything good in this life. And so they're going to be the bad guys in the story because of that, right? 
And so the good guys, even though it's sort of hard to brag about the French in this story, and any of you that have heard this, the, the episodes on the French, you know that they have their own issues, right? But you sort of feel for the French in this situation. And, you know, they got pummeled in 1870 and they lost territory and they've been sort of humbled uh, to the Germans for you know 44 years now and now the Germans are coming in and they're going to destroy France and the BEF so we're, we're sort of going to be symbolic of the BEF the British Expeditionary Force and the French armies in this we're the allied front and we don't have a lot to brag about right now and it's sort of the way the church feels too if you look around you're just sort of like Boy, this isn't looking so hot. And that's true. The church today doesn't look so hot. At the same time, we're the church of Jesus Christ. And even though we don't have our game on yet, it doesn't mean we can't get it on. So this is a great quote about the Allies. Though defeated in the offensive, they were not a rooted army. Their line, though dangerously pierced, was not yet broken. Isn't that a great way of describing the church today? It's like, yeah, we're still here, guys. We don't have to give up. It's not like we need to turn and just declare ourselves defeated. No, we're still here, and we still serve the God of the universe. Yeah, I know we're weak, but... Barbara Tuckman continues, Each mile of the retreat was an agony of yielding further French territory to the enemy. In some places, French soldiers marched past their own homes, knowing the Germans would enter them next day. Operation Paris. To be conquered by the 39th day. So the Germans have had their eye on Paris the entire war so far. And this is what they're after. This is what they're aiming for. Now, I gave a hint at something in the last message, and it was called the motive of the monsters. And I was talking about a motive that the Germans nurse, that they have this idea of something known as the double encirclement. I know if you miss the message, it's sort of hard to catch you up quickly on it, but there was one military victory back in the 200s BC time period, and it was when uh, Hannibal and his army defeated the Roman Empire, and it was an absolute devastation, but it involved something called the double encirclement, and it happened in a place called Cani. And so Cani, the Battle of Cani, is considered by all military scientists throughout history to be the greatest most impressive, most amazing military accomplishment. And so when you're a military general, you want to be associated with such uh, an accomplishment. And so the Germans have a bait in front of them. They have what's called the double encirclement possibility, where they could surround the British and the French on two sides and pull off a canine. And as a result, that bait is going to lead them to make some very bad decisions. Now, what I want to prep you for is that bait is always sitting in front of the enemy, too, and he is very baitable. He, I mean, I know it sounds funny to think of our, you know, our ancient foe as being baitable, but he is driven by lust. He is driven by desire and for power, and as a result, our God knows that. And so that's why I can, with great certainty, say in every situation, our enemy will overplay himself. The point is for us is to remember that and to remember that our God wins and we must wait for the point of counterpunch. Operation Paris. So here's a guy named Joseph Gallieni, and so he's sort of a hero in this story. This is what he says. Briefly, you may expect the German armies to be before the walls of Paris in 12 days. Is Paris ready to withstand a siege? 
So this guy has been in retirement. He's sort of one of those famed uh, French generals. And, but the French need stability right now. And the guy who's over the military, uh, his name is Joseph Joffre, he doesn't like this guy. This guy used to be his professor. And so he feels intimidated when Gallieni is in the room. However, the military, I'm sorry, the, the government of France really wants Gallieni to weigh in on things. So they bring him to Paris, and so they're having a consultation with him, and, and Gallieni wants to know, okay, you guys ready for this? They're going to be here in 12 days. Are you ready to defend the city? Uh, so this is what Barbara Tuckman says. Originally, the date given for the defense works of Paris to be usable was August 25th, but such was the faith in the French offensive that had been put off to September 15th. Long and short, Paris is not ready to defend itself because that wasn't even in the possibilities. In other words, the French offensive, when they went to attack the Germans, they knew that would work, so they didn't think about defense at all, which goes back to some of my previous messages. Hershauer now confessed, he's the guy over the defense works of Paris, confessed the task of creating the defense works of Paris in time was impossible. Okay, this is even worse than we thought, guys. So now the Germans are coming in, and guess what? Paris is not going to be ready to defend itself in time. Because right now, they're going to reach Paris right around September 3rd or 4th. And it's not going to be ready until the 15th. Uh, say it isn't so. This isn't good news. In France's most desperate hour, a hero named Joseph Gallieni rises. So there he is, guys. Isn't it fun looking at these old French guys? Uh, a lot of these guys have cool mustaches. You ever notice that? I was up in Estes Park the other day, and we were in a Starbucks, and this guy came in with this uh, handlebar mustache, and he was an older guy. Looked like one of my French officers that I've been putting on the screen. I almost wanted to come up to him and say, hey, are you related to? But I didn't. I restrained myself and figured, okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so this is Joseph Gallieni. The positioning of Gallieni. Joseph Gallieni would rather just remain retired. He's older. He, his wife just passed away. He's sort of in the seasons of his life where he's really not interested in glory. He's not interested in fame. He's just sort of in a despondent state where it's just like, let me be. However, the nation is going to call on him. And so he's going to come in and see this destitute situation in Paris where there's no defenses ready. And they're going to beg him to take command of Paris, to be the governor of Paris. Now that is about as dumb of a job as you could ever agree to, because Paris is going down. All you're doing is signing your death warrant to do it. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, in France's gravest moment in 1870, he, Gallieni, was being asked to take over a botched job called to defend Paris without an army. So since 1870, which was the battle of uh, Germany and, uh, and France, where France is gonna to fall to pieces. This is the worst moment that they've had in 44 years. And in that moment, guess who gets the worst job description? Mm -hmm. Gallieni gets to step in. So Joseph Gallieni says this, give me an army of three active corps and I will agree to become governor of Paris. On this condition, formal and explicit, you can count on me for its defense. However, how are they gonna get these three active corps? Joseph Joffre won't give them to them. So he agrees to take it, but the government can't figure out how to get him any men to defend it. So we have problem after problem. We have splits and schisms in the church. You know, it's just similar to this, right? You think we could work together and take on a common enemy. Instead, we have our issues. Joseph Joffre and, Jelly, uh, and Joseph Gallieni can't even talk to each other. Aren't we on the same team here? 
the disintegration of cohesiveness. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, Sir John French, so Sir John French is like the field marshal or the head guy, the commander in chief of the British armed forces. His last name is French, but he's over the British and he hates the French. Isn't that an irony? So the French can't get along with each other and the British and the French who are supposed to be working cohesively together in this line, in this front against this onslaught of Germans won't even talk to each other. Okay, French can't stand the French, and the French can't stand John French. Did that, that make sense? Okay, yeah. Uh, Sir John French gave, gave way at once to the conviction that the campaign was lost. You see, this is a bad thing. When a commander of armed forces gives way and says it's lost, that's going to trickle down and create a massive impact. His one idea was to save the BEF, in which was nearly all Britain's trained soldiers and staff. He feared it was about to be enveloped either on his left or on his right, in the gap between him and Lenrezic. Taking justification in Kitchener's order not to risk the army, he thought no further of the purpose that had brought him to France, but only of extricating his forces from the danger zone. All he's thinking about is himself right now. And he doesn't care about France, he doesn't care about Paris, he doesn't care about all these things. He doesn't like them anyways. And so he's thinking about the preservation of himself and his own army. Okay, I, are you guys feeling the situation here? This doesn't look good. Like I said, if we're betting people, we're betting against France in this situation. Paris is going down. And so, by the way, what I'm describing to you, it happens so many times in history where something is so obvious on paper and then something is gonna enter into the storyline which changes everything. The enemy always exposes his flank. So a flank is the side of the army, and every army in battle is trying to take the flank because then they can encircle, they can hit from the side of the back, and that's what you want. And when an enemy is coming at you, it's a rule of thumb that you need to remember in your life spiritually, and that is the enemy always exposes his flank. I have a sub-point under this. Sin has a lot going for it, it's powerful, but it lacks breaks. I know it's a funny statement, but sin, if it could control itself, it would be great because it would tempt you and it would harm you and then it would get you in sort of a deadened state and then it would stop and it would let you just rot in that place. However, sin doesn't have breaks, which means it goes and then it goes further than it should. And what does it do? It awakens you. It actually works to awaken you. It's like, I hate this. Why am I like this? <laughs> and that happens, okay? It's called a window of opportunity. All throughout history, it has worked this way. You have the most desperate criminals that suddenly don't like the fact that they're desperate criminals. But if the enemy could have stopped, he would have. He doesn't have brakes on his whole machinery. And guess what? The enemy does, it does not have self-control. And so as a result, it's a predictable factor of the enemy camp that he will expose his flank. The question is, are you going to be like John French and be heading home, or are you going to be watching for him to expose his flank? You see, there's two different mindsets. When you're on the offensive and you recognize how this works, you're ready to hit the enemy when he does turn. So Barbara Tuckman gives this quote from Henry Wilson. Henry Wilson said to Colonel Huguet, the Germans are over hasty. This is a great quote in history, guys. They urge the pursuit too fast. The whole thing is overdone. They are bound to make a big mistake, and then your hour will come. 
Uh, see, are you guys feeling this one? This is exciting. But this is also not just World War I, this is your life. Because there are certain situations in your life that appear to be so dark. However, if you hold on in faith and you wait on the Lord, watch the enemy turn and expose his flank, and God says, now. Move forward in faith and watch what the enemy meant for evil turned on its head. This is the Christian life. The imperturbable Joffre. So Joseph Joffre is sort of like the commander-in-chief of the French armed forces. And this guy is going to respond very different than John French. John French is just a mess uh, of anxiety. And he's, why they're keeping him in the leadership position of the British Armed Forces, I don't know. In fact, I think almost every historian throughout history is like, why did they keep him so long? He was a disaster area. And yet Joffre is the exact opposite. He's imperturbable. Everyone that sees him, and now it drives some people crazy. It's like, you should show some emotion, Joffre. I mean, the, the world's coming to an end. And he's like, we're fine. We have them right where we want them. And it's like, how does he do that? It's a great picture of how we should function as a Christian. When all hell breaks loose, he grows 10 feet taller. There he is, guys. Uh, the French field marshal. Don't you want to go like this with his mustache? So Barbara Tuckman says, if danger did not strengthen Joffre's judgment in any way, it did call forth a certain strength of soul or of character. When ruin was all around him, he maintained an even tenor, a stolid control. What Falk, who saw him on August 29th, called a wonderful calm, which held the French army together in an hour when it most needed the cement of confidence. A different sort of field marshal. Now let's go the opposite direction, Sir John French. I know it's confusing because here we're talking about the French field marshal, Joseph Joffre. Then we go over to the British side and the guy's name is French. I know, it's totally confusing. However, this is the British guy, Sir John French, who hates the French. There he is, guys. Now, I don't want to make fun of Sir John French or kick him when he's down. This is a rough moment in history for the guy, right? And he's going to try and write a memoir afterwards uh, that everyone in Great Britain is going to basically say, that's a bunch of lies. Uh, you know, everyone knows what happened, John. We know that you faltered. We know that you were fearful. Poor, I, I feel bad for military leaders because they're examined at such a, my, at the level of minutia. So Barbara Tuckman says this, Sir John French, succumbing to the belief that the danger was mortal, had determined that the BEF must be preserved from being involved in a French defeat. Oh, say it isn't so, John. All over England on August 30th, as the Times was read at Sunday breakfast, breakfast tables, people were aghast. I love this quote. It was as if, thought Mr. Britling, David had flung his pebble and missed. You see, everyone expected France and Great Britain to just go over there and cohesively win. Instead, they were disastrously destroyed. And so it's like they come over like David and Goliath, and David swings his pebble, as it says here, and he missed. Well, how are you supposed to swallow that one? That wasn't the storyline we were expecting. Now we got another character, guys. If you've been following this story, William II. Okay, William II has a great mustache, too. I don't have a picture of him. I should have put one in. But he's the emperor, the Kaiser of Germany. He's actually, actually he's known as Kaiser Wilhelm. And the second, and he is quite the character. You had to go back in the, uh, the annals of uh, Daily Thunder to, to learn about him. But this guy is so confident. I mean, they're already producing medals to send out to all the officers, but he is in jubilation mode. Victory is in our grip. 
the German army will be immortalized. We're going to do the double encirclement. This is going to be Kandy, and I'm the king at the time it happens. Just everyone remember that. Write that down. He is such an arrogant guy. And he's so insecure, he just wants everyone to compliment him and stroke him. And so he's in the ultimate mood right now. Barbara Tuckman says, The end was in sight, the scheduled defeat of France by the 39th day in time to turn against Russia, the proof of all German training, planning, and organization, the halfway step to winning the war and mastery of Europe. It remained only to round up the retreating French before they could regain cohesion and renew resistance. Should we just end there, guys? And the war's over, right? It's, it's over. See, some of you don't buy that. You're like, Eric, no, you're milking this. You're milking this. This is going somewhere. Now to finish them off. All they have to do is complete the sentence. Just finish what they started. I mean, this can't be that hard, right? Just round them up. And the, the French are so defeated. They're exhausted. They've been in this retreat for weeks. No food, no sleep. And they're seeing their own homes just trampled underfoot. Paris is going down, they're headed straight towards their, their center. I mean, is there any hope? And when you lose hope, you stop to fight. You stop you know, with that will to win. And it's critical that you have that. So Barbara Tuckman says, Moltke, who's the, sort of like the commander-in-chief of the Germans now. So we had Frank, John French, who's the commander-in-chief of the British. We have Joseph Joffre, who's the commander-in-chief of the French. And then we have Moltke, uh, who's over the Germans. Moltke saw that he needed to take armies from his left to support his right, and did nothing. He could not nerve himself to call off the offensive that had already cost so much. And the Kaiser, remember William, wanted to ride in triumph through Nancy. No changed orders to the Sixth Army went out. Full-scale effort to break the Moselle line continued. Now, there's a lot there that is hard to explain if you haven't been a part of this. However, the French spent all their energies trying to take back a territory that they lost 44 years earlier called Alsace and Lorraine. And so the Germans are supposed to put all their effort in what's called the sledgehammer and come down and take France, or take Paris, France. That was the goal. However, because of the overconfidence and because of the early victories and because the French looked weak down here, they're going to take from their great sledgehammer and bring divisions, army divisions, down to help in this Alsace-Lorraine area. And because the Russians are going to mobilize early, they're going to take divisions and move them over to the Eastern Front, which is going to make this line that is forming here, remember von Kluck that's coming down, thinner than was originally anticipated. Uh-oh, guys. You see, the enemy always exposes his flank. On the same day, August 28th, a new and tempting idea presented itself to von Kluck, which before the week was over was to leave its mark on history. He saw a chance to find the flank of his army, for, find the flank of this army, speaking to the French, force it away from Paris and outflank it. He proposed to Bulow that a wheel inwards should be made by their two armies. They're headed straight for Paris. That was their goal. However, he could actually outflank them without even going through Paris and surround them. And so he's going to turn. Instead of going to Paris, he's going to turn. Why in the world would he do that? Well, I'll explain why he did that, but remember what I prepped you for? The enemy always turns his flank. Oh, there it is, guys, just in case you didn't hear me. The enemy always exposes his flank. Sin has a lot going for it. It's powerful, but it lacks breaks. You see, there's something that motivates the devil that isn't supposed to motivate us. 
It's this craven lust, and so when he sees an opportunity for even greater glory, he has a tendency to jump way too quickly. And so even when you look at the cross and you see the hindsight view that the devil might have, in fact, that's what you see in Corinthians when it says, if, if, the, if the enemy had known what was going to happen because of the cross, he wouldn't have dared crucify the, the, the Son of God. Why would he have done that if he had known that his head was going to get crushed? Well, the same thing is here, true here. Von Kluck would have never turned his flank if he had known what was going to happen. Sorry, guys, I think I just gave something away that something good might happen. Von Kluck's turn, the inexplicable inward wheel of the German army. They're, okay, you guys are going to actually turn. Instead of going to Paris, you're going to turn? They're turning. All of the German soldiers, the only motivation they have is Paris is up ahead. They can see the Eiffel Tower in the distance. Okay, we'll keep going. We'll keep marching. And suddenly, they turn away from Paris. No one even knows why. And, and all the German army, they're like, what are we doing? And they're losing heart. They're like, it's over there. Why are we turning? Barbara Tuckman, instead of brushing the channel with his sleeve, he would brush Paris on the inside in direct pursuit of Len Rezik's army. So he's after the, the French. They're going to surround them. This is going to be immortalized for the Germans. Numbers had fallen below the prescribed density for an offensive. And if Kluck were to adhere to the original plan of a sweep around Paris, the front would be stretched out another 50 miles or more. Seizing upon Kluck's move as a fortunate solution, Moltke telegraphed his approval the same night. So Moltke agreed, you need to turn inward. So this is all settled amongst the Germans. This is a good move. They're going to turn inward instead of hit Paris. So at the very top of the screen, you see Paris, and you see von Kluck coming straight down. Now, I don't know how to do this easily in my you know, keynotes, you know, so I'm going to show that he's going to turn and, and brush against Paris instead of hit it, but I made it a dotted line on purpose because this is what's happening in this line. He has been so stripped of men. Not only have they been lost in war, but then so much Moltke is taken to different places. So as a result, as they turn and they expose their flank, is what it's called, to Paris, so Paris can look outside and see the army turning in front of them. However, von Kluck is assuming that there's just a defensive army in Paris. And as a result, it wouldn't be an attacking army. And that's part of the fun of the story. And so as a result, he is going to expose his flank. Von Kluck's logic. Why would he not attack Paris? Okay, it's, it actually makes sense. He had intercepted a communique explaining the British were retreating to the west of Paris in the most complete disorder. So he has eliminated the British from his mind. It's like, okay, they're out. Yes! And that's, you know, because of their spy network, they come up with these communiques, and so he's solved that dilemma. So John French, remember that guy who doesn't like the French? He's headed the opposite way. He's no longer a threat. He was convinced that if there was a regiment in Paris, it would only come out of its walls if it was attacked. After all, that was German military procedure. So if you are a defending army of a city, you do not go on the attack. You only will fight if you are attacked. And so as a result, von Kluck is convinced that it, he could turn his flank to Paris. I mean, he knows what it means to turn his flank. However, he's turning it to a defensive army who would not come after him, so therefore he feels secure. And he was convinced that the army of Manoury, if it was to his right, you know, in the Paris area, was utterly defeated and unable to supply any true threat. He was convinced that in avoiding Paris, the destruction of the French forces would be hastened, and this again followed German military protocol. If you can avoid a stronghold, 
and, and still defeat the enemy, that's a better way to do it. That's German military protocol. He was convinced that due to the lack of density in his attacking ranks, that the turning would sharpen and tighten the line. By turning, he's going to ally with von Bülow next door, and so they'll have more cohesiveness. Meanwhile, he's turning his flank to Paris, but he doesn't know what's in Paris. Meanwhile, in Paris, I don't think Paris knows what's in Paris yet. We are doomed, the military, you know, the government uh, of of Paris is just like fretting and you know, chewing their fingernails, and they're actually going to leave the day before this and head down to Bordeaux for a new seat of government because Paris is gone. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, inside the capital, the mood was black. Millerand had passed on the heartbreaking facts to the president. All our hopes are shattered, and we are in full retreat all along the line. Manoree's army is falling back on Paris. So Manoree uh, is going to be a leader of an army. That army is going to have the worst, uh, you could say, of luck, right? However, of providential leading to be actually brought back to Paris, not where it's supposed to be, but it has nowhere else to go. And so this entire army is going to end up with Gallieni in Paris. Okay, I'm, I'm baiting you for some. That's a foreshadow, guys. Army is falling back on Paris. As Minister of War, Millerand refused to take responsibility for the government remaining an hour longer than tomorrow evening, September 2nd. Poincaré, that's the president of France, faced the saddest event of my life. It was decided that the entire administration must move to Bordeaux as a unit, leaving none behind in Paris, lest the public make invidious comparisons between ministers. The dark night of the soul. Now, I've talked about the dark night of the soul many times uh, in Ellerslie. But there comes a time in each of our lives where we must have our faith proven. What do you believe? I know it looks like all is lost. However, do you believe that God is faithful? Do you believe that he is true? Do you believe that he sees you in your circumstance even now? And so what Jacob is going to do is he's going to grab a hold of the man of God, who we know is God, and he's going to wrestle through the night until the breaking of day. And that's precisely what we need to do in our life. And this is a proving ground. Oftentimes when people arrive at Ellerslie, they arrive in a state where they're hungry for more, but the first thing that ends up happening is they feel an instability in their soul. Like, do I really believe this? And as a result, they have to go through what we oftentimes call the dark night of the soul, where they have to cling in faith, not because they have something tangible yet, not because they've seen the light of day yet, it's dark but they know God has what they need. And so if I was gonna encourage you in that time, I'd say, hold on, don't give up. Don't ever give up hope. Hold on to your God and he will prove faithful and true. So the subline under that was hold on until the breaking of day. The following morning, September 3rd, Gallieni learned definitely of Kluke's movement toward the Marne. So he just found out that Kluke is turning. He's turning left. Instead of hitting Paris, he's actually, he's turning uh, away from Paris. In the staff room of Gallieni's, I can't say that, uh, bureau, an unspoken excitement communicated itself among the officers. They're like whispering to each other. It's like, uh, is this true? Is this, a, is this a trap? What, is von Kluck actually turning his flank on Paris? As once more the pins were moved, they're on, they're on a map, of a war map. The track of Kluke's turn appeared unmistakably on the map. 
and Claire, boy, these are tough names, and there's two French guys. They cried out together. <laughs> this is what they cried out together. They offer us their flank. They offer us their flank. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this in your spiritual life where something that looked so dark suddenly turns. I have so many moments like this in my life where I have to walk through a very darkened stretch in my life where it seems that all is lost, that there's no way that this can be somehow healed or made right. You cannot even think in your brain of a solution. I've had many moments where, and this is something God had to expose to me, that one of my solaces in a time of difficulty or in a time of darkness is at least mentally having a solution that could work. Then I can rest on the fact that, well, at least it's possible, but God has brought me to the point where I have no solution, even on paper, that could that I could even conceivably see working out except for divine intervention in some way that isn't in my brain. And guess what God does? Yeah, that one. Divine intervention with something that isn't even in my brain. This is not in anyone's mind in France right now. Why would von Kluck turn his flank? Does he not realize that Manoree's army is hanging out in Paris and has a direct strike point on the flank of von Kluck? He doesn't know that. And even if he thought Manoree was there, he thought Manoree was so defeated that he has nothing left. Meanwhile, that was false information. And by the way, John French didn't leave. John French and his British forces are sitting right there. And that's another story for a different episode. <laughs> the enemy, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I'll repeat it if you haven't. The enemy always exposes his flank. Always. The enemy will always expose a weakness. God is always going to ready us as the saints of God, as the soldiers of the cross, to be ready to go on the offensive instead of remain in a defensive position. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And gates are not an offensive thing. They're a defensive. In other words, we're meant to be offensive in our movements. However, there's a time sometimes when we feel like we're locked down in Paris. And it doesn't seem like anything's going right. If you're Manoree, you're thinking, how humiliating is this? I just got chased back to Paris. And I'm totally out of the way now. I'm not in any position to do anything. When in actuality, he was being positioned. If you just looked at this from Manoree's perspective and just did a study just on it from that, it's like everything looked like defeat, 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 and, but he was being positioned. You know, if you study the great persecution, which I call the great chase in the book of Acts, you'll see that the church of Jesus Christ was strategically settled so that the light could shine throughout the world. So what looks like we're being chased all over the place is actually the Spirit of God saying, you go here, you go here, you go here. And as a result, the explosion of the gospel throughout the earth. Huh, well that backfired on the enemy. The counterpunch. So here's the definition of a counterpunch. That's a boxing term. A counterpunch is a boxing punch that immediately follows an attack launched by an opponent. It exploits the opening created in an opponent's guard. Counterpunchers are tactical, defensive fighters who rely on opponent mistakes in order to gain an attacking advantage to get scorecards or the chance of a knockout. So listen to this quote from, I don't know what Evolve MMA is, but they happen to teach on boxing, right? 
If you're just starting to take up the sport of boxing, then you have probably heard of its basic punches as well as its advanced tactics. You know your jabs, your crosses, your uppercuts, and your hooks. Sounds like all the stuff we all know, right? But when you reach the advanced stages of boxing training, the focus begins to shift from offense to defense, and a large part of defense in boxing is counterpunching. So the seasoned veteran boxer, now as if I know a lot about boxing, right? But the seasoned veteran boxer, he's the older guy, right? He's been around the block. He's facing the young buck who wants to dethrone him, right? He wants to take his, his belt, his championship belt. And so the young guy comes in and he's just trying to knock this guy out. I mean, he's slow. The, the, the old guy, you know, with gray on his temples, he's slow. He's not going to be able to take on this young guy. So the young guy is just swinging and swinging, even getting in some good blows. And the older guy, we're looking and going, come on, bud, get your game on. Show us what got you that belt in the first place. But he's not doing anything for a long time. And meanwhile, the young guy's wearing himself out, and he's also giving away his weaknesses. Because what this seasoned boxer is doing is he's studying the patterns of what that young guy is doing. And then at the right moment comes the counterpunch. But it's wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. They just exposed their flank. Wham! And that's how the old guy does it. The improbable makeup of the attack. So the British retreat positioned the BEF to, right, to the right of Von Kluck. So as a result, because of where John French is going to end up going in his despair, and then stopping because Kitchener's going to come over and say, no, 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 no. Are you going to run with your tail between your legs? We have a job to do here. But guess what? That communique didn't get to von Kluck. And so as a result, the British expeditionary forces are going to stop. They're not going to retreat. They're going to be there in a very unique position. Von Kluck's aggression forced Manoree's army to join, the Gallien, to join with Gallieni in Paris. So now Manoree is in Paris with a whole army. As a result, the BEF, Manoree, and Gallieni all have their armies strategically positioned to strike Von Kluck's flank. This is just how God works in our life. Things that look like negatives, like what's happening with John French is a disaster, right? The guy has just lost his head. And yet certain things are going to happen which are going to position him, because of his idiocy, <laughs> in a great spot for something known as the Battle of the Marne. And if you look at the Battle of the Marne, the British come out looking like heroes. And yet right before the Battle of the Marne, the British looked like idiots, right? How did that work? Well, I'd like to say that's going to be the statement of the Church of Jesus Christ today. That we can come out looking like heroes, even though if you were to take a snapshot of where we're at now, we might look a little like Sir John French's army. So there's that uh, flank being exposed. Now I have the three powers that are there. We have the BEF, we have Gallieni, and we have Manoree's army. Now I, I would, it'd probably be even better to show an arrow attacking, but that's for a different message. That's the Battle of the Morn. So here's Winston Churchill. Uh, he says this. This is classic Winston Churchill uh, language too. Now hopefully you can understand this quote because everything I've taught so far is in this quote. Assuredly no human brain had conceived the design nor had human hands set the pieces on the board. Several separate and discrepant series of events had flowed together. First, the man, Gallieni, is on the spot, fixed in his fortress. He could not move toward the battle, so the mighty battle had been made to come to him. Second, the weapon had been placed in his hands, the army of Manoree. It was given him for one purpose, the defense of Paris. 
he will use it for another, a decisive maneuver in the field. It was given him against the wishes of Jaffre. It will prove the means of Jaffre's salvation. Third, the opportunity, Kluke, swinging forward in hot pursuit of, as he believed, the rooted British and demoralized French, will present his whole right flank and rear as he passes Paris to Galliani and Manory in his hand. Observe, not one of those factors would have counted with the, without the other two. All are interdependent, all are here, and all are here now. Galliani realized the position in a flash. I dare not believe it, he exclaimed. It is too good to be true. But it is true. Confirmation arrives hour by hour. He vibrates with enthusiasm. Christianity, right there. There is a moment when the enemy will turn his flank. There is a moment in our individual lives where that is the case. In fact, I could say moments. This is just how we labor as believers. Faith is faith because it can't see. It believes something in the heavenly realms even though the earthly realm is dim and dark. And it recognizes that God is faithful. That he does turn what the enemy means for evil. And he transforms it into a powerful demonstration of who he is. God works all things for good. This is how it works. But he does that for those that believe. Those that are called according to his purpose. He is very good at playing this game. Our job is to do our part. And that's not to pull a John French and to freak out. It's to be like Joseph Joffre in the middle of it, imperturbable, with a wonderful calm. Oh, we've got him right where we want them. You see, God does have the enemy right where he wants them. The point is that we oftentimes don't see it. Who is in control right now? I think all of us know theologically who's in control. I, I think it's God. It is God. He is crowned with many crowns. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. All things are beneath his feet. The one we serve is the victor. He has done the work. Everything that is needed to accomplish what he needed accomplished has been done. Our job is to believe and to see that kingdom come and that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is von Kluck's great cry. He's like, but this, this wasn't in our field manuals. What is going to happen to him violates everything the Germans had mapped out. And because the Germans work off a field manual, just like the devil does. It's like he's so predictable. Every time the devil's doing so, that's why I always say classic devil. He's just sort of limited in his scope. He can only do certain things, I guess, because he's always doing the same stuff. And he's always going to turn his flank. What is he thinking? He's always going to pull the same stunt. He makes total sense to him. But this wasn't in our field manuals. Alexander von Kluck says it this way. He was so shocked by the, by the fight of the French and the British in, this, in the Battle of the Marne that he's going to go on record and say this, that men, will have let themselves to be, that men will let themselves to be killed where they stand is a well-known thing and counted on in every plan of battle, but that men that have retreated for 10 days, sleeping on the ground and half dead with fatigue should be able to take up their rifles and attack when the bugle sounds. It is a thing upon which we never counted. It was a possibility never studied in our war academy. But it is in our war manual. In other words, what is shocking to the devil is not shocking to us. 
You see, we are built for this day. We are designed, even in our darkest moment, to rise up in faith and to fight. Isaiah 59, 19, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. I want to emphasize that word will if you need to uh, you know, underline it a few times in your mind. You see, this is the pattern of the kingdom. When the enemy comes in like a flood, in other words, he's covering everything. He seems to have his finger on everything. The Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. No weapon that is fashioned, no army, no von Kluck attack that is fashioned against you, no double encirclement technique that is fashioned against you will prosper. And this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. You see, we are not going to be defeated. The kingdom of heaven will win. You see, there are times in this battle where, like, let's say I got killed today, okay, a martyr's death. And you could say, well, this is just terrible. I mean, we just lost Eric. Yeah, but we didn't lose the war. In fact, if I go, we can all rejoice. Now, it sounds terrible. It's like, yes, he's gone. You don't need to do that. You could cry a few tears. However, it doesn't mean we lose. Just because we have moments in the battle which darkness seems to have the upper hand, the key is that even in my death, I die with faith. And I hand off the baton to you, say, keep believing. Watch what our God will do. You see, God is going to win this thing. And our job is to believe at every turn. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? We got we got an army coming against us. They're going to hit Paris in 10 days and our, our defense works are not even going to be close to ready. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, um, who can be against us? If this is true, that God is who he says he is, that he is available to us when we need him, what shall we say to any of these things? Anything that could possibly come into our life, what is our answer? If God be for us, who can stand against us? 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And there are going to be moments where it doesn't feel like that's true. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? Have you seen the world? Have you seen their power? Have you seen how they've marshaled together to take down truth in our generation? But greater is he that is in you. And that's how we live. That's how we reason. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, we'll finish with this. Faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it. You see, this doesn't rely on your brilliance, your military brilliance. This relies on his military brilliance. Just like your salvation doesn't rely on your righteousness, it relies on his. You see, our strength as a military unit in the kingdom of heaven is based on the fact that he wins. He knows how to do this. He knows how to steer the hearts of kings. He knows how to turn the flank of von Kluck. It is so inexplicable. When you study this in history, you just sort of sit there because if we stopped everything and we didn't have the Battle of the Marne, like we just stopped all of World War I, we just finished it, every single one of you in here would conclude that the Germans didn't just win, they absolutely devastated the French. 
The French have done nothing to brag about so far. And up to this moment, there is really no hope. And yet something is going to happen, which, I mean, I've just hinted and hinted and hinted at it, right? Just exposed his flank, right? The war is going to go on for four years. I have a hunch something's going to happen here, right? And it is so shocking that you really struggle to have words for it. It's like, what just happened? What was that? But everything is going to turn at this exact juncture. The enemy always exposes his flank. Father, for those of us that are in a dark season, who feel like the enemy is marching upon the fortress of Paris, and we don't feel that we, in and of ourselves, have the ability to defend it, that we feel vulnerable, we feel smallish in this grand war. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that it's not based on our own ability. It's not based on our wherewithal, our might, our power. But these battles are won by the Spirit, says the Lord. And Lord, we want to lean afresh on you and recognize that you are our great military genius. And you will win this. Lord, I pray that for those of us that feel that the darkness will never end, that we would cling to you even in this hour, and we would be believers, that we would be found to be men and women of faith right now. For you will prove triumphant, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's for your praise, honor, and glory that we proclaim these things. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.